Okay, happy Saturday. It is July 16th, 2022, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker. And I'm Michael Haney. And we are two of your deputy editors here at Airmail. Ashley, welcome back. Welcome back. Michael, I got so many text messages and DMs on Instagram from our listeners last week who thanked us for not delving into the horror show of British politics. And I said it wasn't intentional. We had recorded these episodes in advance because we had been on vacation. Yeah, we came back tan, rested and ready. And here we are now. But now now we've got the events of the week and we're here. The meltdown of Bojo, of course, being the biggest news story that in my lifetime. Just kidding. But it certainly felt that way. And it's been fascinating to watch it all unfold. My favorite part of the story by far is the fact that he was still angling to have his wedding reception at Checkers. We all know the guy's a classic narcissist. I mean, even his speech the day he quote unquote stepped down was like, got plenty of excuses, but no taking of the responsibility. And just like, only I can stay here and fix it until you have someone who can can replace me. So the Bojo show is just going to run a little longer now as we see who gets cast on the next season of it. Them's the breaks, as he said, rather bizarrely, but them's the breaks, unfortunately, for us. I agree. He should go right away and we should figure out a way to replace him. The guy's so toxic. Anyway, okay, well, Michael, this is a story that we're going to continue to follow. Okay, Michael, first of all, I do need to know, how was your holiday? My holiday was great. We were up in the Dolomites. If you've never been, I'm I'm usually a beach person when I go to Italy. I flipped it this year for the Dolomites way up in the northeast corner of Italy, a beautiful UNESCO World Heritage Site. And it was just what the doctor ordered. Fresh air, a lot of hiking up in spectacularly beautiful Alps, perfect food. So I couldn't have asked for anything better. And you? It was wonderful. I was in London. I got to go to my favorite restaurant, the River Cafe. Thanks, Ruthie. It was delish, as usual. And I took my children to the Churchill War Rooms. Have you ever been to that museum? Oh, love the Churchill War Rooms. If you read Airmail, I'm sure you've probably been there 35 times already, but it was my first time visiting it. And I thought it was just magnificent. My daughter, who's seven, thought it was basically the coolest thing she's ever seen. Totally stirring. Totally just, I mean, it's a must-see if you're ever in London, just because it brings the the achievement of Churchill's war effort takes it out of just your head and, and makes it so concrete, very powerful. Absolutely. But speaking of conflicts in Europe, we've got a story this week that I would put under the great pizza war in Europe that's happening specifically in Naples, and it's coming to us courtesy of Elena Claverino. And we love all things Italian. We love all things pizza-related here at, at Morning Meeting. And this is one of my favorite stories in a long time. I'm going to tell you why. God, I mean, this guy is such a character. So first of all, tell us about the colorful gentleman at the center of this story. Okay, if you've been to Naples and you've been to Sicily, you know the Italians love their pizza. It is part of the fabric of life there. And part of the great power of pizza there is it's seen as a working person's lunch or even dinner sometimes. You get a couple euros. And even if back in the day, sometimes if you didn't have enough money, you could have pizza on credit at your local place. It was that that important to, to Italians. So along comes a guy named Flavio Briatore. He was the owner and CEO of a fancy pizzeria chain called Crazy Pizza which serves pies topped with truffles and other crazy things. So if, and his pizza pies, a crazy pizza there, a margarita pizza at crazy pizza starts for 15 euros. But he adds some pata negra, which is the best Spanish jamón, and the price jumps to 65 euros. And the restaurant's interiors are very Cipriani-like, white tablecloths, tan leather seats, and you've got loud techno music that starts at 11 o'clock. As one 
a person said to Elena, look, crazy pizza is for football players where they want to go to meet chicks who wear high heels and eat pizza. So this guy is clearly shaken up the culture of the Neapolitan pizza lifestyle. I feel seen when I hear stories like this about people getting like all up in arms about pizza. I'm like, I belong with you guys. I'd like to move to wherever you're living. I, I probably should be living in Naples. That such is my strong love for pizza. Mm-hmm. Well, next time we go to Naples, we can compare crazy pizza and the local ones where they said putting expensive toppings on your pizza in Naples is seen as blasphemous and a perversion of this sacrosanct dish, which, as Elena reminds us, the Pizza was invented by an ambitious chef named Rafael Esposito in 1889 when he presented it to Queen Margarita of Savoy. And just that's the beginning of the Margarita pizza. But fun story. You got to love when some sketchy character comes along and finds a way to jack up the price on something so simple as a pizza. I mean, it's simple, but it's exquisite when done correctly. I'll pay $30 for a pizza, Michael. Such is my love. I don't care. Whatever it takes. If it really is that good, you can't put a price tag on that. Meanwhile, the 99 cents pizza here in New York City, just like sort of like you find them around your cheap snack walking home some days because of inflation. They're having to slice the slices thinner in order to get more out of the pie and maintain that 99 cent price line. So A great New York City tradition being tampered with. I hate to see it. Exactly. Michael... I hate to see the great American tradition of 99 cent pizza being tampered with. But you know what I hate to see it tampered with even more is the very fabric of American democracy, which brings us to the latest news about the January 6th nonsense and the ensuing hearings. Yeah, we have a column this week from the esteemed documentarian Errol Morris, and he is speaking with the director of the new documentary series, Unprecedented, Alex Holder, about his film that goes behind the scenes of the last days and months of the Trump administration. Let's just say it. He's the G-D-F-O-O-T, the greatest documentary filmmaker of our time. And we have him here on the show today. Welcome, Errol. Errol, welcome to the show. Uh, Before we get into this new documentary series, I just want to point out you have also interviewed Trump on camera. And I would love if you could tell us about that and what you learned about him. I was asked to do a film to run at the beginning of the 2002, 2003, something like that. Academy Awards, asking people about their favorite movies. And I was in New York. I was in various different cities. I was in New York. And in the green room, at one time, I had Jessie Norman. I told her how much I liked her version of Strauss's Four Last Songs. I had Iggy Pop. I had Walter Cronkite. I had Donald Trump and Mikhail Gorbachev. Trump complained that we took Gorbachev before him. But in those days, Trump was not yet a head of state. And Alex Holder asked me, did I ask him about Citizen Kane? Well, not at first. He volunteered that his favorite movie was King Kong. As he put it, he came, saw, and conquered New York. I can identify with that. That was the soundbite. But we also talked about Citizen Kane, his advice for Charles Foster Kane. I asked him, Do you have any advice for the man? He seemed to get himself into a lot of trouble, a lot of difficulty. And Trump said he did have advice. Get yourself a different woman. 
What I find so interesting about the two choices, both Citizen Kane and King Kong, is that Trump identified with monsters. You know, one is a, a human monster, Kane, and the other is, I don't know exactly what you would call King Kong, but monsters nonetheless. So maybe it was all there in 2002, 2003. I hope I'm not giving anything away here, but I did not vote for him. We kind of assume that, Errol. Ah, and never will. So this is part of the conversation then that you have with Alex is about film and then interviewing Trump on film and what one's perceptions as a director, a documentarian are in those moments, right? And you both are sort of trying to parse out the essential question, which is, what is his mental state, right? Well, it goes beyond just the question of what is his mental state. The question is, is he batshit crazy? That's the question. The question is, is he insane? Seriously. You just watch the various commentators, whether it's, I don't watch Fox that often except just to torture myself, but watching people trying to figure out whether Trump believes he won the 2020 election. Is this just a strategy? Just something that he does to toy with people? Or is he a true believer? I guess the way you would describe it, is he a true believer in his own bullshit? And it's interesting to ask various people, do you think Trump, both of you, do you think Trump truly believes he won the 2020 election? How else do you explain his behavior otherwise? He's a zealot. The cult and the religion he's always believed in, first and foremost, has been the cult of Trump. I believe he does because he has to believe all the alternate facts that he chooses to put into the world, right? I've got the tallest building. I've got the biggest crowds, right? And as Steve Bannon, as we learned this week, Steve Bannon said the strategy on the election night in 2020, when they thought he was going to lose, was to go out there and declare victory regardless, right? I mean, just because I won, right? And so he he believes what he wants to believe. And so deep down, that's what I find interesting about, it's not even the word, but about the hearings is, well, we want to prove his state of mind. Well, good luck with that, right? It's a really interesting question. I mean, it's a philosophical question, I suppose, on some level. The question of other minds and what is in that container space. I've often thought that Trump is just batshit crazy. And I have my own excuse. I know you have your excuses for this belief. My excuse is that humans are a really pathetic species, that they have this capacity to believe anything. As you note in your column this week, that's hard-won wisdom, Mr. Morris. Tell us how you came to this. Talking to people. As a door-to-door -door salesman. I was a door-to-door -door salesman. One thing you do learn from being a door-to-door -door salesman, that it's easier to sell something if you believe in its efficacy. Not always, but often. My wife once called me a hyperbolizer. And I said, not only am I a hyperbolizer, I'm the greatest hyperbolizer who has ever lived. I believe Trump destroyed America. Literally. When you have some significant percentage of the country who still doesn't believe that Joe Biden won the 2020 election, that still believes that he was an efficacious, beneficial president, I mean... He embarrasses me. Errol, have you been watching the January 6th hearings? Yeah, I'm weak in the flesh. So I can't help myself. So I'm just curious. It's live footage coming at a filmmaker. I'm just wondering 
if you look at it as pure material for a documentary, is there a moment so far that you think is the opening scene or the most, like, if you were thinking, how would I open a documentary about the January 6th hearings? Is there a moment that sticks out for you? Uh, Very early on, I have been talking to him, I would say, for a good part of a year. There was an African-American filmmaker, John Sullivan, took a film inside the Capitol, well, outside and inside the Capitol on January 6th. And it's one of the more extraordinary pieces of filmmaking that I've ever seen. He created a three-hour unbroken tape, including the killing of Ashley Babbitt inside the Capitol, which to me is one of the most extraordinary pieces of filmmaking that I've ever seen. To think that there could be more of this is such a repellent, nightmare-like thought. I used to say that the only way to respond to politics was to sprawl under the bed, suck your thumb, and say, I want my mommy. But how many times can you point this out? On that note, we'll give all of us, including our listeners, a break from Trump, at least for the time being. But we thank you so much for speaking with us and also for leading us towards this documentary, which might horrify us, but also provides an important perspective. Yeah, well, the world should, I believe, in its present incarnation, should horrify all of us. Be scared. There's very good reason to be scared, very scared, and I recommend it to all your listeners. I'm not saying pee your pants scared, but close to it. The next best thing, whatever that means. (laughs) On that note. On that note, we wish you a great weekend full of absolutely no trauma. Thank you. Thank you again. Thank Thank you, you, Errol. Take care. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. On the subject of all things Trump and attempted coups in the United States, there's also a very revealing story this week by Sam Castor and Spike Carter. They have gone back and looked at, as we say, before January 6th, there was Seven Days in May. And some of you may know Seven Days in May. It was made into a film with Burt Lancaster, but it started as a book which outlined how a right-wing coup could happen in America. It came out in the early 60s, and this book haunted JFK, who believed that it was possible that the coup could happen here. And he found the book so kind of compelling as to how it in fact could happen. So they look at the origin of the book and the transition into the film. And if you've never seen it or read it, this will make you want to do that. It's a fantastic film. Kennedy was so eager to see the film made as a forewarning to his generals, especially post Bay of Pigs, that he sort of got in touch with the production via his press secretary, that he wanted to lend a hand in any way he could. But tragically, Kennedy was assassinated before the film's release, but the film was then released in February 1964 to impressive reviews. Okay, we have to take a brief break to talk about the best movie I've seen all year. Lay it on me. Top Gun Maverick. I'm sorry. Did you see it in the theater? Of course I saw it in the theater, Michael. Who do you think I am? I saw it, better yet, I saw it in the theater in Kansas when I was visiting my parents this weekend. Wow. Okay. Right into the danger zone. (laughs) No kidding. The theater was packed. I ordered a medium Diet Coke. It was 64 ounces. I ordered a medium popcorn and it was like the size of a beach bag. It was heaven. The best two hours I've spent in a long time. I didn't think that I was a Tom Cruise fan, but after seeing this movie, I'm ready to move to Xenu and start believing in L. Ron Hubbard because this guy has got it going on. I mean, he devotes himself so seriously to the Pro, to the to the craft and business of filmmaking like no one I've ever seen. I thought this movie was so well done on every level. Well, the good news is they're, they're now 
talking about doing the next one because the box office and the reception, thanks to people like you, was so hot. He looks great. He looks incredible. It's funny because he was such a tabloid fixture for so many years and then he sort of fell off the radar and now I want him back again. He's my new Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt's got Bullet Train coming out later too so we can compare and contrast big summer action suspense movies. Michael and Ashley willing to get COVID just so we can talk about these movies on Morning Meeting. We are devoted to you. I think I've got one more free month because I had COVID in April. So I think that buys me like four months, right? Something like that? I hope so. Just keep rolling the dice, right? It's coming for all of us. Famous last words. You know what else is coming for half of us, Ashley? If you're talking about menopause, yes, I know. Yes, this is an eye-opening piece of reporting, not just for men, but I think for women, courtesy of Alexander Marshall, right? This is a great story. Menopause is being remarketed by several savvy entrepreneurs. Alexander Marshall is one of our writers at large. She's based in France. She covers food, travel, fashion, style, politics, kind of everything, actually. And we are so happy that she has decided to delve into the marketing of menopause for us. There is a god. Welcome, Alex. There is a goddess. Hi. There is a goddess. There's a goddess with declining fertility, as a matter of fact. Let's get to it. It turns out, Alex, that that no longer has the negative bummer connotations it once did. Tell us all about this remarketing of menopause that you have investigated for us for the issue. It's been going on for the last couple of years. I think Gwyneth Paltrow is obviously one of the best known people who went out front with it pretty quickly. She started talking about her own perimenopause. Menopause is defined as a year without your period. Perimenopause is the phase leading up to that when your estrogen and progesterone levels start to plummet and you start to go through all kinds of completely insane things like your hair starts to thin, you get anxiety. I mean, it's different for everyone, but these are just some of the common symptoms. Anxiety, lack of libido, insomnia, bone thinning, and it goes on and on and on. Hot flashes are one of the really difficult symptoms that a lot of women have had trouble dealing with, which is actually one of the reasons that it's exciting to see people talking more and bringing more awareness to the state of menopause because a lot of women suffer in the workplace with these symptoms. And when you're in your late 40s and 50s, you're also at your peak earning years and your highest productivity in your career. So we want people in good health. So the rebranding of menopause, as you asked, we've got like Gwyneth came out. Goop is doing a whole bunch of supplements. She's not the only celebrity. Naomi Watts just launched a brand called Stripes, which means stripes as in you've earned your stripes, which focuses on supplements and is mostly beauty related. So skincare, serums, as well as a lubricant called, if I remember correctly, Vag of Honor. Good morning. Hello. There's lots and lots and lots of interesting ingredients, vitamins, synthetic hormones, things that women can do to ease the symptoms. The problem is just that there hasn't really been a lot of attention paid to women's specific health needs in the past, especially women as we get older. We Most of the time, people just want us to go away. So they don't like to listen to our concerns. But as we get more money and get more social power, that is changing. I like this story because it's in a moment when so many of our rights are being taken away from us ladies, especially here in the United States, it is kind of nice to see this counter movement, right? This claiming of Mm -hmm. whatever we're claiming here. 
ownership over our declining fertility, I guess? Yeah, I guess, or just ownership over your experience, whatever that is. It's hard to say that aging is such a terrible, shameful thing when you see like Patricia Clarkson in a Roland Moray dress and you just go, okay, this is great. <laughs> like, we have aspirational models for getting older now that we didn't have even 15 years ago. But also like this notion that aging was a negative thing or something to be feared or avoided was really created by marketers in the first place, right? Because of course yes. the alternative is death. So I'll take yes. getting older over death, right? I think most people yes. would probably make that same trade-off. But this idea that it's something that we should be afraid of and scared of was really created with the notion of selling us things to avoid that, right? Or to help turn back the clock, so to speak. And Alex, you also talked to Mariella Frostrup. She's been a fairly prominent voice on this in the United Kingdom. What is she working on? Oh my God, she's so great. Well, she has her book called Cracking the Menopause, which has already been a bestseller. And she has been one of the leading voices on a political campaign to get, among other things, Parliament to recognize symptom management for menopausal and perimenopausal workers. So she's led a campaign that already has 600, I think, companies have signed on in the UK to make a menopause-friendly workplace, I should say. So giving breaks to women who are suffering from hot flash or fatigue or any of the other kind of, because the symptoms come and then they go. So they sort of hit you like a ton of bricks and then they ease off and, and you need to be able to respond to them in the moment. So for instance, in parliament for workers who need to wear uniforms, they lobbied for breathable uniforms and fans and short breaks and flexible hours for women who are having a lot of trouble with insomnia, which is a, a huge and common problem with perimenopause and menopause. So symptom management in a way that gives these aging women space to continue to be productive and continue to be the great assets to their companies that they are. We don't want women in their 40s and 50s not being able to go to work because they're hot. As you pointed out, an eye-opening statistic here, 20% of women, according to research, have left or considered leaving a job because of a lack of support for symptoms. So, and as you note then, if women over 50 stopped working, the economy would basically... Would totally collapse. I mean, not only is it in the numbers, but it's also in the like, I mean, in the qualitative experience of things too. Well, Alice, thank you so much for looking into this and for your great reporting and also for... Well, your very funny story, which takes a serious subject as you do so beautifully and gives it a sense of levity and humor. And all right. Well, thanks again, Alex. We'll talk to you very soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. We're talking a lot about movies and books this week. Lots of things to occupy you during the summer holidays. And we've got Terry McDonald here to talk about a wonderful new book of letters from Patrick and Ernest Hemingway. The book is called Dear Papa, The Letters of Patrick and Ernest Hemingway. It was edited by Brendan Hemingway and Stephen Adams. And Terry reviewed it for us in this week's issue of Airmail. Terry McDonald is a storied editor. He was the former editor of the Timing Sports Group. So that meant he oversaw all of the content for magazines like Sports Illustrated and Golf. And and he's also a novelist, and he's written a wonderful novel called California Bloodstock and a screenwriter as well. He's written for a video game called Night Trap and hosted a TV show called Last Call, and he is the president of the board of directors of the Paris Review Foundation. We are so happy to have him here to talk about Hemingway, our enduring favorite. Welcome, Terry. Okay, so Terry, in 1995, you were hired to write a mini series based on a movable feast, and that led you into direct contact with some members of the Hemingway family. Tell us a little bit about this famous dinner that introduced you to Mariel Hemingway and her father, Jack? Well, it wasn't 
necessarily a famous dinner. And I had known Marielle because I was the editor of Rolling Stone at the time. And I had put her on a cover for a movable feast. So I knew her and her husband at the time, who was Steve Chrisman. And it was a project that they'd been thinking out for about for a long time. And they invited me out to catch him. And I went out, had dinner with Jack, who was her father. He's Bumby, the first son of Ernest Hemingway. And his wife, Puck, and Mariel's older sister, Muffet. Interesting names there. The family lived on nicknames. They all had nicknames. So who was Patrick in the Hemingway lineage? Hemingway had three sons. The first was what's called Jack. His nickname was Bumby. And his mother was Hadley Richardson Hemingway. And then with Pauline, when he had two sons, Patrick and Gregory. Patrick was the middle of those three sons. Which occupies a classic place, obviously. But Patrick, I think as you shine a light here, he had maybe the most, the closest relationship with Ernest? How would you describe it? None of that is really very clear from the letters. You have to really read between the lines. I think that, I mean, I agree with you. I think he did, but that does not necessarily mean that he was Ernest's favorite. He did receive that letter from Ernest at one point that said, you're my only real partner in this. Your older brother is not really very smart and your younger brother is quite crazy. Not in those words, but that was the implication. The way Ernest was, he was that way with lots of different people about who his favorite was or was not. But they were close in the sense that they had this relationship for all those years. As you write in your review, Hemingway looms large on many people, whether you're a writer or not. And we can only imagine what it'd be like to be raised as a boy by this man. And what did you learn most in the letters about Hemingway as a father that surprised you or that opened your eyes? Well, he was very different. Difficult. As he grew older and the myth that he fundamentally created for himself through feeding on his own life for the characters that he created, the Hemingway Code came out of that. And what looks to me now like very tired stoicism was very much a part of the culture. And we learned it because we had to study it in school. But Patrick learned it growing up with his father. And I think that he and his two brothers suffered in that regard, that what Ernest built for himself and for his persona, he had also built for his children, knowingly or not. You have a line in here which sort of just, I think, summarizes it so powerfully. You said, it's difficult to imagine a father so careless and yet so pleasing to a son at the same time. Yeah, I think that that's true. If you look at the old pictures, and there are many of them, of Ernest with his sons, they are fishing and hunting, holding huge trophy fish up. They are smiling. They're drinking beer at age 11. They're hunting birds with shotguns. They're riding horses. They're skiing. They're, he taught them all of those things and included them. And yet at the same time, sometimes he would take them fishing and not let them fish, make them watch. It was complicated. How do you think that this collection of letters is going to impact his reputation, not only his literary reputation, but his celebrity reputation, if you will, Terry? Well, I think that this is a really wonderful book to have as part of your collection of Hemingway books and history and biographies and stuff like that, because we've never really heard from Patrick in this way. And Patrick emerges as a son who really wants to please his father and who is thoughtful and intelligent about that and is really a good 
good man. And of all the brothers, Patrick is sort of the least well-known. So it shines a light on him through his writing. And by the way, he writes wonderfully about nature and hunting and fishing in his letters. Terry, as you write, Hemingway was an inspiration to you as a writer. It probably still is. Has left an impression on you. You clearly know a lot about this man's life and his work. Is there anything you learned in these letters that surprised you or that you didn't know about Ernest? Yeah, I was surprised that he would say such nasty things about his wives to one of his sons. I was surprised that he would exaggerate his own accomplishments. It's a very sort of amusing and surprising series of a couple of letters where Ernest explains women's anatomy to Patrick <laughs> with no precision. It's very, very interesting if you're interested in the Hemingway and the history of him and his family and his work. But at the same time, it's also kind of sad. You see Ernest, when he is taken over by his mania, mania and his depression, he's not who he was in the beginning. And these litters span a lot of years. They start, I think, when Gregory's in, at summer camp and they go right up through the end. Terry, as a scholar of Hemingway and a fan of his work, what's the Hemingway novel that you come back to the most often? Which one would you recommend to our listeners to look into this summer? Well, we've all read all of them almost, haven't we? <laughs> Depending on how old we are. But I my favorite is still The Sun Also Rises. I've just been in love with the hopelessness of the lost generation. It's just such an attractive pose. But it's a real story, too, and it's a love story. And Lady Brett Ashley, I mean, she would be, you'd be profiling her. No doubt about it. Yeah. Well, Terry, thank you so much, not only for your great story, but for joining us here to talk all things Hemingway. Okay. You guys do a great job. You have a good day. Thank you so much. See you soon, Terry. Bye-bye. All right. Well, I certainly hope that you did some homework over the break. Do you have any new things to recommend to us? Homework? It's never homework to recommend. Not when you get to just go sit in a theater and watch Top Gun, as you pointed out. I have two things, in fact, to recommend. The first comes courtesy of Jonathan Margolis, otherwise known as Inspector Gadget here at Airmail. He's our tech and gear columnist. And this week, he has discovered an app that I have longed for forever. It's called SoundPrint. And the genius of it is that it allows you to search for restaurants that are reliably quiet. I mean, this is your thing. You're always like in a restaurant now. You can't hear. They're all high decibel. But what you do is it, it goes out, you go on there, and it curates a city-by-city city list of more muted venues. And it'll even tell you ones that are nearby you that you, you can go and try out. It's called Soundprint, and it's on the App Store. Now, my second recommended is restaurant-related, but it's far from quiet. It's far from a quiet, soothing restaurant. It is a new scripted series on Hulu called The Bear, and I love it. And not just because it's set in my hometown of Chicago, though that helps. The Bear is about a fictitious young chef named Carmi, played by Jeremy Allen White, who in the show was named Best Chef in the World at a 11 Madison Park-like place before he was 30, but now finds himself back in Chicago trying to save the dysfunctional, down-on-its-heels, family-owned Italian beef restaurant that his brother was running before he killed himself and left it to him. Now, a side note here, if you don't know what Chicago Italian beef is, it's a local delicacy made with thin sliced roast beef, tangy giardandera sauce, and peppers, and it's served on a submarine roll dipped in beef juices. Now, if you grew up in Chicago, you learn to eat it in what's called the Italian beef stance, where you lean over the formica counter, your feet in a wide stance, and your butt sticking out to avoid dripping juice on your shirt. Now, the bear is gripping, beautiful, funny, super well-written, and well-acted, and it's got a great ensemble cast. It's on Hulu now. 
Well, Michael, both of those sound fantastic. Sign me up for some beef. All right. And you? I read some wonderful books over the holiday break, including a three-year-old book by Pico Iyer, Autumn Light, Season of Fire and Farewells. I love Pico's writing. He has written some wonderful stories for airmail and many books and memoirs about his life and times in Japan. But this one's been sitting on my bookshelf for three years and I never got around to it until the break. But it's a wonderful story about Pico coming home to Japan after his father-in-law suddenly dies and he's trying to make sense of what happened and it's kind of a meditation on life and death and the seasons of life, so to speak, told from the vantage point of his family life in Japan. And it was just wonderful. Japan just reopened for tourists and I have to tell you, it made me want to go. Well, thank you all so much for joining us. We wish you a wonderful weekend and week ahead. We'll see you right back here next week. Michael, please read us out. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, and Julie Vitale. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We'll be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure and subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music. But most of all, thanks again for joining us.